Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, history friends. Welcome to this episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. Are you a New Yorker or from New York or able to get to New York? Then you should check out the Intelligent Speech Conference, which is going to open its doors to all history podcasting fans in about a week's time. On the 29th of June, a really, really exciting gathering of history podcasters is taking place. Folks like Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud will all be in the same place at once. Who knows what might happen? Maybe some kind of rupture in the history podcast continuum, but hopefully it'll all go down without a hitch. I, unfortunately, will not be there, and maybe that will stop the rupture from happening, but I would love to be there in the future. And if you would like to see more conferences like these take place, the best way to ensure that they do happen is to support them. It's one thing to sit here on a sunny Saturday afternoon and talk to myself into this microphone. It's quite another thing, and it's really a pleasure to meet you guys in person and hear what you think about this show and hear how it's helped you or helped you stay sane or helped you be more informed about history in the past. It really is a pleasure, I have to emphasize. So I hope you will join the Agora podcasting people and ensure that this is a big success. I have every confidence that it will be, but maybe you're not really a one for meeting people in person. Maybe you'd rather talk to them over the internet, but you're also sick and tired of those social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook clogging up your feed and filling you with things you don't really care about. Well, first and foremost, I'd say try and get past that because we are on Twitter and Facebook and we're having quite a good time doing it too. You can follow us at WDF Podcast, join our group, which has nearly 750 members, or like us on Facebook as well, because we have a Facebook page with more than 3,000 people liking it. We've been a bit slow with those different mediums, because Versailles has pretty much consumed everything, and I've also not been as organized as I would have liked to be, but that's going to change once all of this Versailles stuff is out of the way. So do go and check those things out. And if you're really not a fan of either of those platforms, why not check out Flick? Flick is where we are if you are not all that happy with Twitter and Facebook and you still want to partake in historical discussions, then Flick is where you should go. You can download the app Flick for free and once you do, you'll be able to find history friends that want to talk about stuff just like you do. Hope to see you there, but I also hope you enjoy this episode. So without any further ado, let's get into it. 
You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 79. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 79 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. In the last episode, that infamous scene at Scapa Flow came under our microscope as we took you to the moment when the German high seas fleet self-destructed to the immense embarrassment of the British, who were meant to be watching over them. When we placed the incident in its proper context, we noticed we noted that while it was embarrassing in the short term, in the medium term at least, it seemed like a source of potential conflict regarding the future of said fleet had been removed. What was more, the act was not going to ingratiate the Germans to the big three. In the final few days of negotiation, the act appeared like one of defiance and a representation of the shameless German regimes of old. Notwithstanding the transition of Germany from imperial to republic, the big three saw the Scapa Flow incident as the vindication of their belief that nothing had really changed in Germany's government, if indeed they had thought about Germany's government at all. If they had thought about it, then they would have noted that on the same day as the Scapa Flow incident took place, back in Germany, a new government was formed. Gone was the old German government led by Chancellor Scheidemann. Gone also was Ulrich von brockdorf rantzau who had served as the government's foreign minister. Now the country was to be governed by new men, led by Chancellor Gustav Bauer and represented abroad by Foreign Minister Hermann Müller. This change in government was significant because the old government had been toppled by its refusal to reach a consensus on what to do about the peace treaty. With the counter-proposals determinedly rejected on the 16th of June, the days that followed had not restored any sense of confidence in Weimar. The Allies were determined to stand firm, and as they prepared for the moment when Germany would say no and war would be resumed, German statesmen tried to work out a formula which would enable them to say yes, with the least amount of damage being done to German honour or their own personal beliefs. Their requests were straightforward, but utterly impossible for the Allies to accept. And in this episode, the twilight of the peace conference, we delve into the day of the 22nd of June to examine exactly what was happening what the big three thought of it all, and much more. Without any further ado then, I will now take you to the penultimate day of meaningful negotiations in the conference, can't believe I'm saying that at this stage, the 22nd of June, 1919. The day before, the big three had met in five separate meetings, but the main story was the German treaty. The Germans had complained that the Allied reply of the 16th of June, which was as extensive as their own counter-proposals, actually contradicted some points of the original draft treaty from the 7th of May. The appendix of the morning meeting of the 21st of June was therefore full of communiques sent back and forth between the relevant Allied departments to reach the predictable conclusion that in fact the Germans were wrong and no contradictions were in fact present between the actual draft of the treaty and the Allied reply to the German Kedra proposals. Additional issues were discussed later in the day, though. Paderewski had released a memorandum challenging the Allied treaty with Poland, much of the terms of which were bound up with the Treaty of Versailles. It was therefore important to settle Paderewski's issues, which were based on the contentious matters of granting special rights to the Jews, the German minority, and interference by the League of Nations in Polish affairs. As that was discussed, the Committee of New States made proposals for how Italian relations with the new free state of Fiume would proceed. In the early afternoon, the borders of Yugoslavia and Romania were considered. It was noted that these issues would be folded into the Austrian peace treaty, 
but an optimistic claim was put forward that good progress was being made with the reparations clauses for Austria. From 6pm on the 21st of June, the Allied reply to the German claim that the 7th of May Treaty and 16th of June reply contained inconsistencies and contradictions was presented. It went through each point in turn and essentially it told the Germans where to go. This was sent a few hours late in the evening of the 21st of June and this would have sent a clear message to the Germans that the Allies intended to stand by both their treaty and their reply. There would be no ground given or concessions made. Frequent mention was made in the draft notes that it was too late to alter the German treaty at this point, so it is therefore surprising that the Allies grappled with a last-ditch German effort to do just that on the evening of the 22nd of June. The fact that the Allies were here meeting on a Sunday and that the Council of Four meetings had virtually never taken place on a Sunday should tell us all we need to know about the sense of urgency which dominated the meeting. Both meetings that evening were brief and the Allied response to the German request earlier in the day was outlined and later approved by the Japanese. What was this German request? Well, we touched on it in the last episode, but it bears repeating here. The Germans had said, The government of the German Republic is ready to sign the Treaty of Peace without, however, recognising thereby that the German people was the author of the war and without undertaking any responsibility for delivering persons in accordance with Articles 227 to 231 of the Treaty of Peace. These articles, while they came late in the treaty, were essential for establishing the legal basis for reparations. The non-guilty party could hardly be required to pay reparations. It was therefore impossible for the big three to concede to removing them now, but due to the deadline which was fast approaching, it was necessary to respond to this German request immediately. Remember, thanks to the Allied note of the 16th of June, a five-day deadline had been imposed on the Germans, where afterwards the war would be resumed. Now this deadline was actually adjusted to Monday the 23rd of June at 7pm, on the condition that this was the very last extension the Germans would get. The only reason they got it in the first place was because they changed their government ministers around on the 21st of June. Hopefully this all makes sense, but something we need to return to is that sense of urgency. And this sense of urgency was present even in the reply which the Allies drafted to the Germans, and which they sent only a few hours after receiving that original German note which had requested that Articles 227 to 231 be removed. This Allied reply read, The Allied and Associated Powers have considered the note of the German delegation of even date, and, in view of the shortness of time remaining, feel it is their duty to reply at once. Of the time within which the German government must make their final decision as to the signature of the treaty, less than 24 hours remain. The Allied and Associated Governments have given the fullest consideration to all the representations hitherto made by the German government with regard to the treaty, have replied with complete frankness, and had made such concessions as they thought it just to make, and the present note of the German delegation presents no arguments or considerations not already examined. The Allied and Associated Powers, therefore, feel constrained to say that the time for discussion has passed. They can accept or acknowledge no exception or reservation, and must require of the German representatives an unequivocal decision as to their purpose to sign and accept as a whole, or not to sign and accept. The treaty is finally formulated. Yikes, there was not much room for manoeuvre here. The words, 
less than 24 hours remain, highlight the last-minute nature of the negotiations up to this point. It was emblematic of the Paris Peace Conference as a whole that the two sides had spent nearly two months faffing around, only to hold down-to-the-wire negotiations in the final hours of the deadline. One imagines that if the Germans and Allies had worked more quickly, the Treaty of Versailles could have been signed as much as a month earlier, perhaps even earlier than that. For all their efforts in formulating counter-proposals, a process which took the guts of three weeks, the Germans were not much better off by the evening of the 22nd of June than they had been on the 8th of May. What miniature concessions had been made, such as the plebiscite for Upper Silesia, were overshadowed by the sheer demands which seemed to be made on German honour. There was much talk back in Germany about these points of honour, which revolved mostly around the aforementioned articles that they had tried to get removed. Of course, the Germans couldn't know exactly how willing to defend the treaty the Allies were until they tested the water. The problem was that they continued to keep testing these waters, which pushed the Big Three's backs further against the wall. By this point, Lloyd George's earlier desires to moderate the treaty with some concessions to Germany, and we might recall that he wasn't even sure which concessions to make, well, this desire had come to an end. With the delivery of the Allied reply on the 16th of June, the Big Three had essentially fallen into line, messy and disconcerting though this process had been. Thus the Germans were appealing to men who had no choice other than to stand by the treaty they had made, rather than men who had wished to find some common ground whereby it could be changed. It was simply too late, in other words, for the Allies to go backwards now. Back in Germany, a situation akin to chaos was taking hold. The impact which the resignation of the Scheidemann cabinet had made on the country was hard to gauge, but certainly the new Bauer cabinet was not ready to present itself to the Constituent Assembly until the afternoon of the 22nd of June. Notable in their absence from this coalition was the National Democratic Party, the centre-right party of the Weimar Republic. The remaining parties, the Catholic Centrists and the Social Democrats, together proclaimed their willingness to accept the treaty. First, as we saw with their note, they attempted to adjust the treaty with the aforementioned reservations on what would come to be known as the Wargild Clause. In the late afternoon of the 22nd of June, as negotiations continued and the minutes ticked by, another note was sent by the German Foreign Minister, Hermann Müller, which accompanied the earlier request to exclude Articles 227 to 231. As it happened, this long memorandum was added to the shorter communique from earlier in the day, and the Big Three considered both documents together at their 7pm meeting on the 22nd of June. So what did this second German note, sent in the late afternoon by the new German Foreign Minister, actually represent? What, what was the purpose of it, and what did it actually set out to achieve? Well, boiling it down, all this note really amounted to was a protest against all that the Allies had demanded of Germany so far, and it reiterated the request made earlier in the day to abandon those Articles 227 to 231. It was also an appeal to reason, to justice, and in some respects, to sense. It came from the pen of the new Chancellor Gustav Bauer, who perhaps had something to prove to his peers and foes alike. Acceptance of the treaty was one thing. Rolling over was quite another. As a result of Bauer's resentments, the tone of the memo is something to behold, and it gives us a great window into the German mood in this 11th hour. It comes across in many sections as a bit rich, 
but also sections, particularly those criticising allied hypocrisy and selective compromises, were quite fair. One paragraph in particular is of note to us. It read, If the government of the German Republic is nevertheless ready to sign the conditions of the Allies, with the above-mentioned reservation, yet this is not done of its free will. The government of the German Republic solemnly declares that its attitude is to be understood in the sense that it yields to force, being resolved to spare the German people, whose sufferings are unspeakable, a new war, the shattering of its national unity by further occupation of German territories, terrible famine for women and children, and mercilessly prolonged retention of the prisoners of war. The German people expects, in view of the grievous burdens which it is to take upon itself, that all German military and civilian prisoners, beginning on July 1st, and thereafter in uninterrupted succession, and within a short period, shall be restored. Germany gave back her enemies prisoners of war within two months. Due to the confusing or late way which the Allies responded to the two German notes that were sent on the 22nd of June, this note was sent out before the Allied refusal to remove articles. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 227 to 231 had been received in Germany. Here, even with the serious concession that that removal would have represented for the Germans, the tone is bitter and resentful here, and at times it's even threatening, declaring at one point that the Weimar government accepts no responsibility for what its separated German citizens might do in the eastern regions. Of course, this note was also obsolete as soon as it left the printers, because the Allies refused to accept the fundamental point upon which it was based. To remove the articles that blamed Germany for causing the damage and beginning the war 
would have meant trapping their statesmen in a legal bind, whereby claiming reparations would have been impossible. This German note, this second one of the 22nd of June, was therefore as doomed as the first one, though it did not read like the note of a resigned enemy. Gustav Bauer continued to drive the point home in this second note, reiterating the point that Germany further lays the greatest emphasis on the declarations that she cannot accept Article 231 of the Treaty of Peace, which requires Germany to admit herself to be the sole and only author of the war, and does not cover this article by her signature. It consequently follows that, without further argument, Germany must also decline to recognise that the burdens should be placed upon her on the score of the responsibility for the war, which has unjustly been laid at her door. The gauntlet was plainly laid down, and Bauer even took the time to protest the removal of German colonies, and the Chancellor added a request that in two years the Treaty of Versailles would be debated before a Council of the League of Nations. This council will be expressly tasked with examining those articles of the treaty which undermined the self-determination of the Germans. It is not clear what Bauer hoped to gain from this, but perhaps he imagined that within two years, much of the vitriol directed against Germany would have receded, and Kammer heads would have enabled Germans to lay claim to more land. Yet one imagines that those new states who had acquired formerly German land would be just as unwilling in two years' time to give it up as they were now. At its core, the request would only have added fuel to the fire which Scapa Flow had helped turn into an inferno. This fire burned brightly and intensely and told the Big Three that the Germans were neither remorseful nor clued in on the Allied mood. The result was almost certainly a hardening of Allied hearts in the final hours of negotiations, though at this point no amount of Allied generosity could have changed the treaty anyway. I want you to consider another important aspect of this period in German history. Note the fact that the centre-right party bowed out of government at this stage, leaving only the Social Democratic Party and the centrists to carry the burden, and consequently to signal their approval of the peace treaty. This was immensely significant in later years, because it enabled propagandists to tar all Social Democrats, Catholics, centrists, etc. with the same brush of capitulation. It also played into the Nazi claim that only social democrats, who were easily conflated with Bolsheviks and Jews, were to blame for making the peace. The building blocks for the destruction of the continent and the vilification of the Treaty of Versailles were thus already being laid, especially among those Germans who tended towards the right in the first place. A terribly effective political smear from the right was to blame the left for signing the treaty in the interwar years, a tactic which, as we'll see, the Constituent Assembly of the Weimar Republic explicitly voted against on the 23rd of June. The 22nd of June was nearing its end by the time the Allied refusal to consider the removal of those unfortunate articles were received. This must have been a devastating blow to the new German government. It may well have tempted some within that government to resign and to let someone else handle the mess. Some German officials in the centrist party advocated an additional appeal and further demands, as though the process could just continue on indefinitely. From 11pm that night on the 22nd of June until about 3am in the early morning of the 23rd, the German government met and debated the issue endlessly. Should the military penalty of refusal be borne, could any German face his peers again if he accepted these terrible articles? In a mood of utter misery, the government dispersed without coming to a decision. They were due to meet again at 8am on the morning of the 23rd of June, and it was not at all certain that at that meeting, with fewer than 12 hours on the clock, they would be able to reach a decision. 
As Chancellor Bauer and President Ebert knew, though, they had to try. The 22nd of June was a day of intense anxiety for the Big Three as well as the Germans, but events at Scapaflow had not done Germany's reputation any favours. Lord Balfour indicated his keen desire to discuss the issue on the Sunday evening of the 22nd of June, but he indicated he could wait until the next day, on Monday the 23rd. This scene of the treacherous Germans burning the Allied prizes had been etched into the minds of those eyewitnesses, but the Allied leaders quickly determined, whether they had been there or not, that they knew why the act had been done, and they knew what it meant for them. An additional penalty for the Germans was that any sense of sympathy which they might have enjoyed in the Allied press had been torpedoed. Regardless of how useful that resource was, the British were loudest in their anger, simulated or otherwise, and set to work establishing a legal case whereby they could prove collusion between Admiral Reuter and the German government for the purpose of claiming reparations from those sunken ships. The effort was something of a farce, but it did provide the papers with something to talk about, and it kept the incident alive until the end of the year. Even Wilhelm II was interested in what had gone down, requesting details of the scuttling and the casualties suffered while in his Dutch exile. The French reaction interpreted the scuttling as a first step towards greater German emboldening, thus the treaty would have to be signed quickly. Interestingly, an observer near the incident, the postmaster Isaac Moore, who we heard from in the last episode, was quite pleased at what the Germans had done, and he remarked that, As far as Orkney was concerned, it was a good thing. We were all glad he did what he did. The Allies were arguing amongst themselves about what to do with the ships. Admiral Reuter did a good service to a piece, and he provided a lot of local employment later on. While practically the incident aided inter-Allied cooperation, the potential for viewing Scapa flow as an increase in German courage could not be ignored. In addition, the incident must have provided a black mark against the Weimar Republic, which none of the big three had dealt with particularly enthusiastically to begin with. Hadn't Ulrich von brockdorff rantzau been a representative of that government? He hadn't exactly impressed them with his performance on the 7th of May. Here now was another example of their treachery, piled alongside the defiant notes which continue to demand the impossible. Woodrow Wilson was suitably unimpressed, and claimed that he no longer trusted the German government. But then again, Woodrow Wilson had never been much of a supporter of the Weimar Republic in the previous months, despite his central role in its creation. We've examined Wilson's lacklustre support for the Weimar Republic in the past, as well as his apparent inability to distinguish between the two regimes in his head. A further reason for Wilson's scepticism and inability to support the new democratic Germany was the rampant divisions within his own delegation. While not typically inclined to be moved by what his advisers or peers on the delegation thought or said, a truly acute problem was the question of where this delegation could find its political equivalent in Germany. What political party or grouping in the Weimar Republic, in other words, roughly corresponded to the ideology or vision of either Wilsonianism or, more broadly, the liberal side of the Democratic Party. Wilson, to the end, was never sure of this answer. He never found a German politician in post-war Germany that he felt completely willing to trust, nor did he spend much time trying. This must have been demoralising for the Germans, who had formed a democratic government largely upon the instruction of Wilson in October to November 1918, because it appeared to be the best opportunity to appeal to his principles and gain a fair peace. Notwithstanding the debate over whether Germany would have democratised regardless, 
The fact that Wilson seemed unable to identify with the German democratic experiment was a serious shortcoming of his political action. He was also pressured by Clemenceau to refrain from engaging in much diplomatic negotiations with the Germans in any case. As Klaus Schwebe wrote, Given this uncertainty among his advisers, it was difficult for Wilson himself to develop a consistent and constructive policy with regard to the democratic development in Germany, a policy which would go beyond the purely negative goal of containing Bolshevism. And as he knew very well, he could afford a constructive policy of this kind only to a very limited degree, for even the hint of a pro-German attitude on his part would have strained his relationship with Clemenceau, who had blocked American initiatives of this sort back in December 1918. It is also worth considering the possibility, as Klaus Schwab does, that Wilson wanted to free the United States as quickly as possible from the military, political and even economic ties which it had formed during the war. Unfortunately for Wilson, this desire was very much at odds with what the overall political situation at the end of the First World War required. It was also at odds with his own personal goals, at least the goals he had arrived in Paris with in December 1918. This was because the United States would be obliged to protect the Entente if Germany was let off lightly by a Wilsonian peace and consequently became a military threat again. But conversely, the United States would have to protect Germany if the Entente should try, by force of arms later on, to revise the peace treaty to its own advantage. In short, if Wilson wanted Wilsonianism to take root in Europe, it seemed that the United States and the United States alone would be willing to defend it whoever attempted to threaten it. On paper, this meant that the realisation of a Wilsonian peace would have brought with it increased entanglement of the United States in the affairs of the old world. This was not guaranteed to be the case, of course, since certain other Allied statesmen were enthusiastic about Wilsonian ideas and creating a new order under the League of Nations. For the most part, though, Wilson imagined the United States carrying the burden, and for the most part, the United States as a new world power was not prepared, at the end of the day, to assume the resulting responsibilities. This is an interesting result of the peace conference, which we have yet to really tackle, the notion that these great ideas would have to be defended in the post-war years by equally great men. Wilson had certainly come to realise by June 1919 that, even with a great amount of the public on his side when it came to liberal principles and goals, the statesmen of Europe were moved by much more traditional concerns. Britain had gotten its mandates, the secured future of its empire, and it maintained its naval dominion. France had secured the Rhineland, conditional control over sensitive industrial regions, and they had received Alsace-Lorraine. Japan had been greatly empowered in Asia, securing Shantung and a definite sphere of control over portions of China. Italy, among the Big Five, was the least pleased, but Orlando had still gained some measure of satisfaction through the creation of the Free State of Fiume. A quick survey of the minutes would have told Wilson all he needed to know. The Allies hadn't spent countless hours feuding over how to best implement the League of Nations or establish a new world order. Instead, the issues which animated them the most were those that directly concerned their states and peoples. Mandates, reparations, the Rhineland, Fiume, Shantung. Not one of these concerns would have been particularly alien to the statesmen of the pre-1914 era. To this, Wilson would have said that the great new organisation of the League would solve these issues and would iron out the wrinkles in the post-war world. That was his answer, as well as houses, even though neither man would have confessed himself fully satisfied with the treaty with Germany 
and Wilson in particular changed his tune on reparations as well. He started out proclaiming his unwillingness to punish the Germans by taking their money, and he then ended the peace conference by claiming Germany needed to be punished. This change in mood obviously outraged the Germans and made them feel cheated, but it was a natural reaction by the president. Since he couldn't persuade the other Allied leaders to give way on reparations, he essentially decided to join them where he couldn't beat them. In line with Wilson's increasing redirection towards making Germany pay, he also swung towards the right and towards isolationism, or at the very least became more realistic about isolationism's popularity. The president was unable to escape the fact that for many Americans, disengaging themselves completely from Europe was more popular than instituting and then defending Wilsonian principles for the next generation. The need to withdraw, which some of his own advisers felt, also undermined his pledge to guarantee France alongside the British, and effectively maintain that wartime alliance against Germany well into the peace. Considering Clemenceau's political acumen, it is no wonder that the French Premier was nervous about this pledge being carried through to fruition, and it is equally unsurprising that Clemenceau pushed for the occupation of the Rhineland as an additional security, regardless of what Lloyd George tried to claim about the watertight nature of the guarantee from the Entente. Clemenceau seems to have known better what the President was actually capable of, and while he would have absolutely preferred a maintenance of the alliance over a military occupation, he would settle for option A and B together, where option A was far from reliable. As Klaus Schwab notes, Clemenceau was right to interpret Wilson's position in this way. He wrote, Wilson could not ignore these feelings, particularly when they concurred with similar ones being expressed by the American public. He was even less able to oppose them when it became clear to him, early in 1919, that his party, the socialist and bourgeois left in Europe, were much too weak to be of any help to him in obtaining a liberal peace. Wilson thus found himself obliged to work together with the existing governments of the right centre. His turn to the right, forced on him by a number of circumstances, caused him at the same time to move away from the German Wilsonians. Influenced by the pressure from the right which was making itself felt everywhere in Europe and the United States, Wilson himself began to think more in terms of national policies, and indeed the realities of power politics. As a consequence, Germany's appeal to left-wing elements for international solidarity had little effect. As the sun rose on the morning of Monday the 23rd of June, 1919, it was evident that the Rubicon was about to be crossed. By the time the sun set again, Germany would either have signalled its willingness to accept the utterly unacceptable, or she would have declared her intent to frustrate Allied intentions yet again, and prepare futilely for a resumption of a war she could not hope to win. Neither option filled President Ebert with confidence, but to the Allies, placing Germany between a rock and a hard place was a good enough result. At long last, following so many months of development and so many weeks of negotiations with the Germans after that, the message was finally being broadcast loud and clear. There was no more time for delays, no more chances to gain concessions. The Germans were trapped and they faced two impossible choices, choices which were a mirror image of those which had been presented all the way back on the 7th of May and before that on the 11th of November. Does Germany want more war or will she accept the shame? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.